You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. And it is on page 968 of the Church Bible, 968. We began our a fairly short series on the Sermon on the Mount last Lord's Day evening. Uh, it will probably be a, an eight or nine part series uh, in order for uh, David to be able to practice what he preaches and go to the creche uh, this morning to see that the, the creche people are behaving properly and that the children are looking after them. Uh, it, I have been bumped up to business class or first class, uh, and uh, we haven't got very far. We had our first study last Sunday, and we're going to read the first uh, 16 verses of Matthew chapter 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on a mountainside and sat down, and His disciples came to Him, and He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's lovely to think about the apostles in the early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles experiencing this, uh, perhaps for the first time, when we're told that when they were being persecuted, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy. That is, that it was so obvious they belonged to Christ that they were suffering for His sake. And that's intimately connected to the four verses that follow, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. I don't know if you can remember when you first heard that there was such a thing as the Sermon on the Mount or when perhaps you first read or heard people quote the Beatitudes. I have a very vivid memory. I think I was seven years old, 
uh, for reasons that need not concern you. I was being moved out of one class in primary school into another class, and I remember vividly the emotions that ran through my whole body as I walked into this class, uh, was taken in by a teacher. The class was already in session at about 9.30 in the morning, and all the children in the class in the days of the old-fashioned Scottish education were chanting with one voice, and Jesus went up onto a mountain and sat down, and His disciples came unto Him. So, you can tell this was the 1950s, and He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, "'Blessed are the poor in spirit,' for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I still remember as, a, I guess, a seven-year-old, this kind of deep cry for help that went up within me. These children knew the Beatitudes off by heart. I didn't even know these were the Beatitudes, and suddenly I had to get up to speed with the very first lesson of the day. And in a sense, that's actually a parable of what the Sermon on the Mount is. The Sermon on the Mount is Discipleship 101. Matthew's gospel is sometimes referred to as the Disciples' Gospel. And the reason for that is that the 28 chapters are punctuated by five big blocks of teaching about what it means to belong to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And in order to understand this first block of teaching, it's important to remember that the Sermon on the Mount doesn't really begin in Matthew chapter 5. The significance of the Sermon on the Mount begins a few verses prior to that at the end of chapter 4. And when we run on into chapter 5, we realize that it's set in a very particular context the king has come, and he has proclaimed that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, the terms are synonymous, the kingdom of heaven that God's people had been waiting for for so long, it has already arrived because the king is here. And Matthew has already prepared the way for that. These wise men have come from the east, and they are looking for the king who has been born. And so, right from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is identified as the king who is going to bring in the kingdom of God. And so, first of all, the kingdom of God is proclaimed by Jesus. And then the kingdom of God is demonstrated by Jesus. He not only teaches about it, but He shows what the power of this kingdom accomplishes. And so, blind people are helped to see, lame people are able to walk, demon-possessed people are set free, sick people are made well. And the undergirding message, therefore, is when the King comes and establishes His kingdom things become what they were originally meant to be. That's what all these miracles are about. They're not, they're not puffs of smoke. They're not acts of magic. They're not just spectacles. 
They are signs, they are hints, they are indications that when the kingdom comes, the way life was meant to be begins to be restored. In a way, they're little hints of what Jesus will ultimately do when He consummates His kingdom in the resurrection. They're kind of minor resurrections in the lives of people, reversing in their lives the impact of the fall, the impact of sin, the impact of the powers of darkness. And all indications, to use Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 5, that if anyone is in Christ, then it's a new creation. Most of our translations say something like, if any individual, if any man, if anyone is in Christ, he or she or they are a new creation. That's not actually what Paul says. Paul is not talking, first of all, about what happens to the individual in him or herself. He's speaking about the new world into which the individual enters. If anyone is in Christ, then that person is now not only living in the old creation, not only a citizen of the old kingdom, but has been brought into a new order of reality altogether that has its own king, its own principles, and that kingdom is a kingdom in which life is beautifully transformed. And that's where the Beatitudes fit in. We would misunderstand them if we thought, Jesus is telling me what I'm supposed to be. There are no exhortations in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes do not say, this is what you must try to be like. So, uh, tighten your fists and close your eyes and say, I am going to be poor in spirit. Now, what Jesus is doing is describing what actually happens to a person when the powers of the kingdom of God are released in them. He's not telling us what we should try to be. He's describing the blessings, the happiness, the, the enviable situation of the individual who has been brought into the kingdom of God and who finds himself or herself having walked into a new creation and being a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. Now, obviously, we are not going to go through the Sermon on the Mount verse by verse. Uh, I want to go through it quickly so that we catch the flavor of it and are able to perhaps study it better ourselves. But let's first of all think this morning about the way in which these Beatitudes as a whole are descriptions of citizens in the kingdom of Jesus. Actually, a very interesting little Bible study to do is to ask yourself the question, how do each of these Beatitudes connect to the teaching of the Old Testament? Because every single one of them has a line that goes back to something in the Old Testament. But there are some basic principles 
in these Beatitudes, in this description of the Christian believer that are common to all of them. The first is that they all present a kind of contrast to us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And there's something in all this that contrasts with our ordinary expectations of life. What the Beatitudes say to us is essentially, in order to be filled with the Lord Jesus, we need to be emptied because as we are, we are already too full of ourselves. So, there needs to be an emptying of our own fullness in order that we may experience the fullness of the Lord Jesus. And that's why the very first beatitude is a, is a kind of a doorway into them all, that riches and blessing and inheritance and the, the benediction of the new creation that they are only ours because one of the things the gospel does to us is to make us sense how poor we are in ourselves and how bankrupt the kingdoms of this world are to provide for us the satisfaction and happiness and enviable life that we were actually made for. Remember how Ecclesiastes puts it when the preacher says that God has placed a burden on every single human being. What is that burden? He has set eternity in our hearts. That's the significance of that, that with that burden placed upon us that we were made for eternity, it's logical and it's obvious that nothing that is less than eternal can ever really satisfy the person who has been made for the eternal. And all of these beatitudes have this kind of contrast between the way in which we ordinarily think. We ordinarily think that in order to be rich, you have to be rich. But what Jesus is teaching us, in order to be rich, you have to be poor. And uh, the kingdom of God brings you to see your poverty in order that you may be ready to taste God's riches. Not only is there that contrast, but uh, in a many, very striking way, there is a, there's a kind of reversal, isn't there? Um, this was true in Jesus' world, and this is true in our world. We pay lip service to some of these beatitudes, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, but when we take these beatitudes as a whole, they reverse what this world regards as the enviable life and uh, the, the word that is used here in Matthew's gospel means happy in the sense of that there's something about him that makes me want to have what he has. There's something about her, and I just have the sneaking suspicion that's got something to do with them being a Christian, and I hate the idea I would have to be a Christian in order to have it, but there's something they have that seems so right 
and desirable. And yet, the way in which all of these realities come true in our lives is is really a reversal of this world's values, isn't it? You know, we don't want to mourn. We don't want to be poor in spirit. We don't want to be hungry. Actually, all the all the experiments people do indicate we don't actually want to be merciful. We don't really want to be pure in heart. I mean, imagine wanting to be pure in heart. All the fun would go out of life, which just indicates how intoxicated I am. You know, how I've become like the… I remember at a golf tournament years ago hearing one pretty uh, impressive young professional golfer saying to a more mature golfer, I spent last night drinking myself silly till three o'clock in the morning, and I had a great time, and I, I watched the look on the face of this seasoned and more successful golfer who had lasted, and uh, the young man disappeared out of the scene. Why? Imagine being so blind that you can't see that actually isn't having a good time. That, that, that intoxicating yourself when you're made for eternity, and you see, so there is this huge reversal in what takes place in the life of the Christian believer. That's why when someone is brought to faith in Jesus Christ out of all kinds of different lifestyles, it is immediately evident. That's one of the things that gives some of us pause about becoming Christians in the first place, isn't it? I remember as a teenager how that gave me a real pause. Everybody is going to know, and I'm going to lose my friends because this is going to make me so different. It's going to reverse the direction of my life. And uh, that's why it also produces conflict. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's wonderful. Blessed are the the pure in heart, the meek. I mean, isn't this a description of the kind of person you would just love to meet? That the you know, aren't aren't we dying to have people like this in in the world? No, people like this in the world actually die. This is a beautiful description, isn't it, of the Lord Jesus? And therefore, inevitably, this, this lifestyle draws persecution. Now, there's a reason for that, because this lifestyle in its most gracious form does not need to speak in order to condemn. Isn't that the case? Interesting now, if you are in a situation, you're at a party somewhere, and you just happened to mention the name of Jesus, the atmosphere that changes, the, the sense you have, people are, why did he have to mention that name? Why, why do people react so strongly against Jesus? Because all that he is condemns them. And therefore, either they have to seek him as their Savior, or somehow or another they have to silence him and silence those who remind them of Him. And all of this is simply what is true of you if you're a Christian. This is not Jesus saying, pull yourself up by your your bootstraps 
and be a better Christian. This is Jesus saying, if you're a Christian, it is what it is. You may not see yourself this way, but if you're a real Christian, these are the kinds of marks that you are a citizen in the heavenly kingdom. You belong to a different kingdom. Yes, you're Scottish, or if you have less ambition, you may be something else, who knows? You may be English or Welsh or Irish or American. That's your, that's your citizenship. But you see, when you're brought, into the, you're brought into this kingdom, this is one of the reasons why we are blessed here to have a, a multi-ethnicity in our fellowship that we all belong to a, a much more significant kingdom than the particular state, republic, or country in which we were born. And the national identity in this kingdom makes us just different from those who don't belong to it. So, overall, this is a description of the citizens in the kingdom of God. Let me just focus down on one of these particular descriptions and see it as an illustration of the dynamics of the kingdom of God. Um, There is an old saying uh, that you can't teach your grandmother to suck peppermints. I don't know what that is in in Greek, and it probably isn't isn't a, a a proverb in the, in the Far East and probably not even in the United States. What does it mean? Well, those of us who were brought up in that proverbial day, when we were children, someone gave you a peppermint and you crunched it. I am a peppermint cruncher from my youth. My grandmother was a peppermint sucker. So she could suck a peppermint for half an hour, 45 minutes. It's a personality test. You know, it's, like, it's, the, it's the Rorschach peppermint test. You reveal your personality by how you handle a peppermint. And the same thing is true of Scripture. Many of us are Scripture crunchers, zip right through. But we need to learn to be Scripture suckers. So, just for a few minutes, let's suck on one particular beatitude. Verse 5 and I've chosen this simply because it came up in David's exposition of 2 Corinthians just the other Sunday. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, meekness was despised in the Hellenistic world into which Jesus came and the gospel first penetrated. And meekness, by and large, is still despised, isn't it? If you're, if you're going to do business of any kind, meekness is not going to be the way to success. That's, that is not the way of blessedness, happiness, fruitfulness, or success. But what does Jesus mean by meekness? Here's what Jesus means by meekness. In Scripture, the meek person is the person who has submitted his or her life to the Word of God, who bows his or her life to the providences of God, and who is adaptable 
bendable, pliable in their lives to the will of God. Because they have bowed before Him, there are no circumstances that can cause them to bow down any further. And because they have bowed before Him, they are willing to be anything, do anything, and go anywhere that the Lord Jesus calls them to be, to go, and to do. And so they are magnificently free from themselves. And that gives them enormous strength. Um, you know, there are all kinds of interesting little Bible jokes. Um, first mention of a motorcycle in the Bible is the roar of David's triumph being heard throughout all Israel. And smallest man in the Bible is uh, Bildad the Shuhite. Um, but it is no joke when we are told who the meekest man in the Bible was in the Old Testament Scriptures. You know, he specifically described Numbers chapter 12, I think verse 3, X was the meekest man on the face of the earth. The interesting thing was, he was in the process of leading somewhere between one and two million people over a period of 40 years through a desert. It was, of course, Moses. Moses was the meekest man in the face of the earth. Does that mean he was weak? No, the very reverse. He was enormously strong because he had bowed down before the Lord and His Word, was willing to have his life bent into the providences of God, and so he was gloriously free from anything that man could do to him. You can't keep a meek man or a meek woman down. Why? Because he or she has already been down further before the throne of the Lord of glory. And therefore, anything that people do to the meek person is, in a sense, so much water off a duck's back. It's a matter of saying, Lord, this is it's not really about me. I am here for you. You're here for me. It does not matter what man does to me, because they cannot either put me further down than I am before your glory, nor can they promise me a reward greater than the one that you have promised to give to me. And actually, the, the Lord Jesus is simply quoting from Psalm 37, I think, when He says this, blessed are the meek, well, the meek go to the end of the line, don't they? No, says Jesus, blessed are the meek, because they will inherit the earth. Actually, that's, uh, that ultimately is going to be true in the evangelistic sense. The gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. The earth is going to be the treasure of the Lord, and the Lord is going to share that treasure with His people. But it's also true here and now, in, uh, not just in an evangelistic sense, but in what you might call a kind of ecclesiastical sense. Um, not just now, but sometime this afternoon, uh, just, just count the number of nations that are represented 
in, in our little church. Um, and the nature of the bonds in our little church. We're already being given a taste of what it means to inherit the earth. Some of you know I spent most of my life teaching in a theological seminary. I remember at a, a dinner for the students we had one night, somebody pulled out a little Gideon's New Testament that had at the front the, it was either, I think it was the 23rd Psalm in at least a couple of dozen languages. And we just passed it around the room. And it was read in every single language. Even in Gaelic, especially in Gaelic, was it read. Now, what did that say? Um, that said that the meek inherit the earth. But there is a that there is a fellowship and a bond that we experience because we belong to Jesus Christ. And it is so beautifully expressed here in the life of the people of God. But then there's something else I want to notice. There's a description of the Christian as a whole, citizen in the kingdom. There's an illustration of the dynamics of the Christian's life in, for example, blessed are the meek because they will inherit the earth. And then also there is a further explanation of what it means to be a Christian in the world. And here we come to these words in verses 13 to 16, 13 and 14 are are particularly well-known because they've kind of come into ordinary speech, you know, so-and-so is a kind of salt-of-the-earth person. Uh, but what is it that Jesus is saying here? Now, again, notice, he is, notice what He is not saying. It's a good question to ask when you're reading any part of the Bible, what is this not saying? And here's what it's not saying. It is not saying you need to become the salt of the earth. It is not saying you need to become the light of the world. It's saying if you are a Christian believer, if you belong to this community of disciples, then you already are the salt of the earth. You already are the light of the world. So, and here's the command, stay salty. Here's the command, don't hide your light. Let your light shine. But we need to be very clear on what Jesus is not saying. He is not saying, I need, what do I need to do in order to become the salt of the earth? How can I become as a Christian the light of the world? He's saying, if you're a Christian, you are the salt of the earth. You, you can't help but be the salt of the earth. What's the, what's the point of the salt? In, in this culture, the point of the salt is that it, it acts as a preservative, and because it acted as a preservative in the very nature of the case, pre-refrigeration days, in the very nature of the case, it left a lingering taste that inevitably made people thirsty. 
And that's the picture. The Christian, the Christian is in a situation where by their very presence in that situation, they act as a kind of preservative. I have a, a friend, an elderly friend now, a good, good few years older than I am, a geologist by a profession who went on, on one of these great polar expeditions in the in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Uh, and do you know what was said about him by, by the leader? His presence kept the party clean. Now, you know, this, is, this man is not a type A++ personality. Actually, he's a man of, of beautiful meekness. But you see, that's what did it. Um, a preservative and our society desperately needs that kind of preservative. And yet, uh, it, it is the kind of preservative that leaves a, it leaves a kind of taste in people's mouths, doesn't it? Um, I, you know, I, I often say that we, we have an, an aroma as Christians. Paul uses that language. An odor or a perfume or just a plain smell but we also have a taste. And uh, when people who aren't Christians leave our presence, there will be a taste. They will have tasted something that would preserve their lives, and uh, it makes them thirsty, and they need to find a way of satisfying their thirst. And there is only one way ultimately to satisfy that thirst. And at the same time, we're the light of the world. Um, we, we shine. Yeah, we don't shine as well as we would like to shine. But just by being Christians, we shine. What does that mean? Well, we, we teach our children what it means. In this world is darkness. So let us shine. You in your small corner, and I in mine. There, there is serious darkness. Most of the people most of us know would not be able to explain to us what the Christian gospel is. There is huge darkness. It's, it's not like, and now it's not like city darkness. There used to be city darkness in Scotland. If you live in a city you have never actually been in the dark. You know, you said it's got dark, but it never gets dark in a city. That's why when you approach a city, there is this kind of ambient light. But if you've lived in a rural setting, then on a cloudy night, you can go out and put your hand right up in front of your nose and not see your hand. That's what darkness is. And our country has moved from a kind of ambient darkness to a deeper and deeper darkness. But even if you're a rather weak light, as soon as light is introduced, the darkness is exposed and uh, light comes in. I mean, sometimes it's like, you know, you remember how you used to love you were at the seaside as a kid and you lifted up this bigger... Uh, a rock as you could just to see all the scary creatures 
being exposed to the light and flying away. And that will be our experience. We will lose friends. We mustn't lose sight of why it is we lose friends. It's because actually they never were real and lasting friends. And it's uh, all Jesus is saying here is so let your light shine. What does that mean? It means, as uh, I think it's been well put, that as we grow in grace, we begin to do the spiritual thing naturally, and the natural thing spiritually. It's not that we've got Christian bits attached to us. It's that we're Christ's, and the light shines. The salt is salty, and it simply cannot be hidden. It cannot but be that we leave some kind of taste. Sometimes when you mess up in a conversation, even with a fellow Christian, maybe especially with a fellow Christian, you go away and you feel, you feel clammy and dirty and, you know, said the wrong thing. But when we speak well for Christ, when we live out Christ, it simply cannot be hidden occasionally as we go through living the Christian life, we, we have what I think are kind of illustrations of something that is always true. Remember, years and years ago, the, the day we had taken our family down to London in order to get our first uh, visa to work in the United States, 1982, I think it was December the 13th, there had been a major train derailment. We'd gone to the American embassy, all six of us, by train. We were coming back. We had to go some circuitous route. This miserable night, December the 13th, that lives in infamy in my memory, the thought of going to the United States, and I never wanted to go. And we're standing at Crew Junction of all places. It's raining, it's cold. The children are all small. And from the other side of the platform, someone walks up to me and says, Excuse me, would you by any chance be a Christian family? Or just a few months ago, we stopped on the A92 because there was a a lady with all kinds of stickers on the back of her car, all, looked all very new age, stopped to help her. And with the conversation, she turns around and she says to me, would you by any chance be a minister? And I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> minister, <laughs> Presbyterian. No. I mean, why do these things so surprise us? But when they do surprise us, it's such a reminder to us, isn't it, that this is happening all the time. And what the Lord is saying to us here is not, you need to try so much harder than you're doing. You are a pathetic witness to me. No, actually, the lesson here is we just need to believe what He's telling us about ourselves and to live in that faith so that everything we do, everywhere we go, every word we speak, we speak out of this trust that we are the salt of the earth and we are 
a light of the world. Does, does that mean that we preach the gospel and use words if necessary? No, no, no. There's much about speaking the gospel, but what he's speaking here about is our being the gospel that we speak. Well, uh, you may actually be somebody who's got a kind of strange taste in your mouth. Even just being in this place gives you a strange taste, and that's something inside that makes you want to draw back because you feel you're being drawn in and, and perhaps this eternity hole in your life is being exposed. Well, this is the reason, and uh, you need to come to the light, which ultimately is Jesus, who gave this great promise that first brought me on the Christian path. I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And it's so true. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the teaching of our Lord Jesus, and we pray that these characteristics that he describes that are so full of blessing will be the hallmarks of our lives, and that you would give us this quiet confidence because many of us are shy and fearful and reserved and feel that we are such failures as Christians, that because we because we belong to your kingdom, we cannot but sound Jesus-like and live Jesus-like, just as we belong to this kingdom and sound Scottish-like and English-like and Irish-like. So, we pray, fill us with a quiet confidence that you will use us in this way for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.